Amen. Well, I hope you have your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Um, Matthew chapter 20, we're going to be looking at um, another parable on the issue or the topic of discipleship. Now, Jesus told several parables, and I've just kind of taken two or three here in the middle. Um, Jesus told many parables about what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a part of his kingdom, what it means to follow him as Lord. And this morning, we're going to look at uh, Matthew 20 and a parable that particularly deals with the new principles of God's kingdom. Now, if you read through the Gospels, you'll notice that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and its reign and rule in the hearts of God's people, that there's a completely new set of principles, a new set of ethics, a new set of ideas and thoughts that come along with that. And this morning, as we look at this upside-down, inside-out kingdom, Jesus is going to focus in on the new principles of grace, mercy, and generosity, which are going to make up his kingdom, a kingdom where the last will be first, and the first will be last. Jesus is going to turn the world upside down, or what we would better say, he's going to turn it right side up. Okay, so now Jesus, what he's going to do here is he's going to challenge us, and this is very pertinent to our sensibilities even today, Jesus is going to directly challenge our self-centered way of viewing the world. All of us have an eye problem, except it's not this eye, right? It's the eye of self. All of us are radically self-centered um, because of the fall, and our culture doesn't always help that either. So Jesus is going to directly challenge our self-centered way of viewing the world He's going to chastise our innate envy and jealousy because that raises itself often with our eye problem. And he's going to elevate the principles of grace, mercy, and generosity. Now, before we jump into this text, I always love to give you the context of the Bible because you should learn to read your Bible in context. And that's what my job is to help you do as a pastor is help you understand how the Bible is put together. And so as we look at the this section of Matthew 18 and 19, before we get to chapter 20, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about the kingdom. He's been teaching them about discipleship, and he's been telling them some certain things that you need to know about. He's challenged them in Matthew 18 about their errant view of who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. They were, in fact, the disciples were arguing about it. Who's going to be the greatest, Jesus? And Jesus says, whoever's the servant of all turns their world upside down. And then Jesus tells the crowds that unless they become like a child in faith-like dependence upon him, they'll never even enter the kingdom of God. He goes on to say that whoever humbles themselves like a child will be greatest in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus tells them in Matthew 18 and 19 that God's heart is to go after the lost sheep. And we looked at that parable not too long ago from Luke. And then, one of the most famous stories in, in Matthew 19, Jesus is confronted by a rich, young ruler who thinks that he is good because he's kept a few of the commandments and because he's been blessed with a lot of material possessions. But his problem is, he's unconcerned about the welfare of others. And one of the saddest tales in all of the New Testament, he walks away from Jesus sad 
Because Jesus told him to count the cost, sell what he had and give to the poor and to follow him. To trade everything he has for Jesus. And he says, Jesus isn't enough, I'd rather have my stuff. One of the saddest stories. And then Jesus tells them there that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are dumbfounded. Why? Because in this upside down, inside out kingdom of God, the children and the poor are, and the tax collectors and sinners are finding their way into God's kingdom and the rich and the religious elite are on the outside looking in. And this baffles all of those looking on. They wonder who can be saved. And so here is the point of all of these encounters in Matthews 18 and 19. Here's the truth about God's kingdom. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, here is the truth you need to take home. It's the truth that God doesn't work the way the world works. That's a good place for an amen. God doesn't work the way the world works. In fact, God doesn't work the way that most people think He works. God's kingdom isn't built upon riches. It's not built upon power. It's not built upon the, your age or your social status or your education or your race. But it's built upon mercy and grace found in Jesus alone. That is what his kingdom is built on. The very last verse of chapter 19, look there at the last verse of chapter 19, Jesus gives the rationale of God's kingdom. He says there, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now let's look at what he says in context, keeping that in mind. The first will be last and the last first. And he says this in chapter 20, for the kingdom of heaven... It's also that's synonymous with the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. 
May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Now, let's kind of get into the context of this a little bit further, some of the cultural context you need to know. Now, Jesus plainly says that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like this parable. So this parable conveys some spiritual truth about what the kingdom of God is really like. And this parable, like all of Jesus' parables, uses common ideas, common pictures to illustrate spiritual truth. And this parable in particular has several cultural features that, set, that first century hearers would have immediately understood. And here they are, briefly. Number one, briefly. Jesus uses the normal work day in this parable. A normal work day. He says, you all know what this is like. Working from sunrise to sunset. About 12 hours was the work day. Second, the complaint about those hired first bearing the heat of the day would have been very reasonable. After all, if you've been in the Middle Eastern sun in the middle of the day, you know what that would be like to bear the heat of the sun. Same thing here in West Tennessee. It gets hot around the 4th of July. That complaint is very reasonable. Jesus does not discount that it might be a reasonable complaint. Third, day laborers usually stood in the marketplace. That was very common. That was the only way for them to find an opportunity to work. It's kind of like a job fair. You stand in the marketplace, somebody shows up and hires you for the day. They were typically very poor. Day laborers were some of the poorest in all of the land because they had no steady income and were at the mercy of the more wealthy landowners who were farming. In fact, slaves were oftentimes in better living conditions than day laborers. Fourth, a denarius was the typical wage for a day laborer. It was basically subsistence pay as the poverty line during this time was about 200 denarius a year. So if you got to work 200 days of the year, you were subsistence, you at least had enough bread to live on, but you were not going to get ahead. You were at the poverty line in the land. Fifth, day laborers were required. Sorry, owners, people who hired day laborers were required by the Old Testament law to pay them every single day. It's not like you could wait two weeks to pay them. They were poor. They had to buy their food day by day, so they were required by Old Testament law to be paid at the end of every day, just like you see in the parable. This is what Deuteronomy 24 says. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. So God cared that these day laborers were paid every day. Lastly, every listener of Jesus that heard this parable would have immediately understood that the owner of this vineyard, the master of this vineyard, was God. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel was told over and over again that they were God's vineyard planted by him. And in fact, God would seek fruit from them um, uh, as he planted them. And Jesus himself uses the image of vineyard over and over again throughout the Gospels to illustrate this truth. So those are some of the cultural things you need to know as we get into this. So what now, the question is, what can we learn? What are the principles of God's kingdom that, that we need to learn as disciples? 
After all, we are called to love God, love people, and make disciples. And so disciples have to understand certain things about God's kingdom if we're going to reproduce ourselves in the lives of others. So here they are, four of them, I believe, unless I can't count. Three of them. Amen. Amen. So here they are. Number one, what can we learn from this? Number one, comparative thinking will rob you of kingdom perspective. The first thing you can learn from this parable is comparative thinking, this idea of comparing yourself one to another, will rob you of kingdom perspective. All it does is blind you to the way that God's kingdom operates. Look at verses 2 through 7. He says there, after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, that's a very important part of this parable. He sent them into his vineyard, and going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going about the sixth hour and the ninth. He did the same. At the eleventh hour, he went out and found others. He sent them into the vineyard, and then skip to verse 10. And when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius, and upon receiving it, they grumbled at the master. Verse 10 is the, is the key to this parable. Without verse 10, it would be very difficult for you to understand the point of the parable. It says in verse 10, they thought they would receive more based on what they have seen transpire in that those hired last were paid a denarius, and so were the rest of them. They thought... Being compared to the others, they would receive more. Now here is the question. Do they have any right to complain? Look at verse 2. What does verse 2 say? They agreed to work for a denarius. Those hired at the very beginning were hired for a denarius, which was the typical day labor rate. Do they have any right to complain? No one forced them to agree to that relationship. This is voluntary employment. This has, by the way, just an aside, nothing to do with our modern sensibilities of equal pay for equal work. That is reading into the New Testament text. That's not Jesus' point at all. Do you know, by the way, as Jesus tells this parable, who would complain? Let me tell you who would complain as Jesus' listeners. Because Jesus is telling this to elicit a response from his listeners. The Pharisees, who were pleased with themselves and looked down on others in self-righteous pride, they would feel a reason to complain. And their complaints would have sounded like this. We have earned God's favor and blessing more than the others. If they receive God's blessing, speaking of tax collectors and sinners, then we should receive, what should we receive for all of our good and all of our righteousness? If they receive that, then we should receive even more. Or maybe somebody else would complain. You know who else might complain? The Jews. The Jews who had, who had sought to serve God for 2,000 years, and yet they weren't given preferential treatment to the Gentiles who were being welcomed with open arms into God's kingdom, they might have also felt a right to complain. So learn the lesson of Jesus in this upside-down, inside-out kingdom. Here is the principle at work here. You need to take this home with you. God doesn't count merit toward us in our relationship to Him. God doesn't count merit 
in our relationship to him. He doesn't take into account your work or your sacrifice or your goodness or anything you've thought you've done or haven't done in regards to his love and mercy towards you. So all of this comparative thinking that I've served Jesus longer or I've done more for somebody else or I'm better than anybody else or I've done more good than them or I've sacrificed more, that matters not one bit in your relationship to God. God doesn't count merit towards you. So if you live with comparative thinking, all you will do is steal your own joy. It will cause you to doubt God's promises and grace. It will undermine your understanding and experience of the gospel. It will cause you, if you live with comparative thinking all of the time, it will cause you to be filled with jealousy and envy towards others. It will stir up bitterness in your heart towards God. God, why didn't I get what they got? So all that does is stirs up bitterness towards God and towards your brothers and sisters. It will keep you from celebrating God's grace and generosity in the lives of others. It will make you like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. You remember? When the, when the younger brother comes home and everybody's throwing a party and the older brother, what's he doing? He's outside of the party. He refuses to go in. And instead of joyfully celebrating the repentance and reception of others, you stand on the outside stewing in bitterness and anger at God's generosity. Instead of rejoicing over the generosity of God towards others who only worked a couple of hours, you will murmur and complain. Now hear me. We can't compare ourselves or our reward or our blessings or our struggles with others who may be doing better or worse than us. Don't we tend to do that all the time? We feel better because we're doing better than others that are struggling. Or we feel worse because we think we're doing better than someone else and they're a little bit ahead of us. Listen, we cannot... Be, we cannot live with this kind of human, worldly perspective. Those have no bearing on your standing in God's kingdom. God's kingdom is altogether different, and what we need is kingdom perspective. So that's point number one. Comparative thinking, all it will do is rob you of kingdom perspective. That's what Jesus says here. Point number two, if we're going to be disciples here, number two, there is a lesson that we need to learn, and this is this. God is never... And will never be in anyone's debt. You need to hear that. God is never and will never be in anyone's debt. Look at verses 11 through 14. It says there, On receiving the denarius, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. Now look at the argument of the vineyard owner. This is what he's saying. I am doing you no wrong. That's the first step of the argument. Step two, I choose. I Sorry, step two, I, you agreed with me for a denarius. That's what we agreed upon. Number three... I choose to be generous. I'm being generous, not being greedy. Number three, I can do, number four, I can do what I want 
with what belongs to me. Point five, why are you jealous of my generosity? Okay, that's the argument, right? That's Jesus' argument. The point Jesus is making is that God cannot and will not ever owe anyone anything. There is nothing you can do, there's nothing I can do to obligate God to do something for me. God cannot and will not be placed in our debt. It cannot happen. Jesus says this in Luke 17, 10, that at the end of our work, at the end of our service, even unto God and His kingdom, this is the perspective we must have. Luke 17, 10. Jesus says, And when you have done all that you were commanded, you will say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. You hear that? That's what Jesus says. That when we stand before him, even in his grace and mercy, what we're going to say is, I'm an unworthy servant. I have only done what was my duty. Now, let me give you an anecdote from R.A. Torrey, the 19th, uh, the, the 19th and early 20th century pastor, um, who, who wrote a book called The Power of Prayer and the Prayer of Power. And he tells this story about a letter he received. Think about this in terms of God being in our debt. This is a letter someone wrote uh, Mr. Tory, let me read it to you. It says, Dear Mr. Tory, I am in great perplexity. I have been praying for a long time for something I am confident is according to God's will, but I do not get it. I have been a member of the Presbyterian Church for 30 years. I've tried to be a consistent one at that. I've been superintendent in the Sunday school for 25 years. I'm an elder, I've been an elder in the church for 20 years, and yet God do, does not answer my prayer, and I cannot understand it. Can you explain it to me? And this is how Mr. Torrey responded. He says, this man thinks that because he's been a consistent church member for 30 years, a faithful Sunday school superintendent for 25 years, an elder in the church for 20 years, that God is under obligation to answer his prayer. He is really praying in his own name. And God will not hear our prayers when we approach him in that way. We must, if we would have God answer our prayers, give up any thoughts that we have any claims upon God. There is not one of us who deserves anything from God. Amen. That is the truth. Think about how you can try to twist God's arm by saying, haven't I been good? Don't I deserve this? Haven't I been better than them? Why do they deserve that? Listen, to be able to put God in your debt is to be able to control God. And by the way, what do you call the person that controls God? God. If you can control God, then you are in fact God. So if you have this idea that because you have done certain things and you have acquired a certain status that you can actually manipulate and control God, then all of us need to bow down and worship you. This is how self-centered we get that we actually elevate ourselves to being God. So God cannot and will not be manipulated or coerced or indebted. All that we have is owed to him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And unless you forget, he owns the hills as well. He made them. God doesn't borrow from anyone that he should be paid back. And, his king, and in his kingdom, it would do us well to remember that truth. God is, not and will, God is never and will never be in our debt. 
Third kingdom principle. God is free to reward and judge according to his own standard. God is free to reward and judge. Look at the end of verses 14 and verse 15. The owner of the vineyard says this. Notice the words here. I choose. You can underline that. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Notice all of those personal pronouns throughout there. I choose. Do you see that? So I'm going to point out just three quick things. God is the only being who is actually free to do as he pleases. God is the only being. You are not free to do as you please, even though you might think so. God is the only being who is actually free to do as he pleases. God chooses, God gives, God withholds. And Jesus' parable focuses here on the goodness of the owner in comparison to the unwarranted complaint and envy of the workers. Again, God's goodness and justice aren't subject to human perspectives of goodness and justice. And this truth, by the way, plays itself out millions of times a day across our broken world where the Bible rightly says everyone does what is right in their own eyes, which, by the way, is not the eyes of God. Second, not only is God the only being who's actually free to do as he pleases, notice, secondly, that God cares more for people than he does for things. Do you see that? Did you notice that the owner in the parable generously gave the last workers enough to eat on even though they didn't deserve it? They worked one hour. They didn't deserve to go home and have food. But what does the owner do? He generously cares enough for them not to send them home hungry. That's not, that's not, that's not God being mean and angry. That's God being generous towards the undeserving. Right? So, the owner, wasn't the owner was primarily concerned with people and not profit. Now, let me tell you, that is not a great business strategy. But it does show us something of the heart of God, doesn't it? Doesn't that show us something about the heart of God, that he cares more about people than he does for profit? Right? And so I would add here, again, man's views of justice and fairness are seldom God's. Compare this again to the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. He could have been rejoicing, but instead he's squandering over the property that was squandered of his father. He's not concerned about the person, his brother, He's concerned about property. And this owner is more concerned about people than his property. Now, let me just say here, what is, what, we have to do the same thing in God's kingdom. Think about the makeup of God's kingdom. I want you to think about God's kingdom for a second. Some are great workers. Some get out and get things done. And some are strugglers. And God is gracious to both. Why do, why, why do we become envious of those, of those above us for their work and despise those below us because they can't serve like we do? Part of being salt and light in this world and demonstrating that we belong to Christ's kingdom is our willingness to operate our lives with the same kind of generosity and grace as demonstrated by our Heavenly Father. We must also care more for people than things because only people were made in the image of God and only people will live for eternity either in heaven or separated from God in hell. And then finally, God is far more generous than we could ever imagine. God is far more generous than we could ever imagine. Pay attention to the warning here at the end. Look what the owner says at the very end. 
He says, do you begrudge my generosity? That's what he says to those that complain about him being generous. Do you begrudge my generosity? The word for generosity here is actually goodness. It ties this parable back to chapter 19 and the rich young ruler, right? Where it says there in verses 16 and 17, it says, The man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. And so Jesus is saying, Here, pay attention. Why do you begrudge my goodness? There's only one who is good. And it is God himself. And he is more generous than you could imagine. So what is there to complain when we stop and think about it from a kingdom perspective? What is there for us to complain about with God's goodness as we understand the gospel of grace? All of us have, all of us are swimming in the ocean of God's grace. What is there to complain about? Our eternity is sure in Jesus. All of his promises are yes and amen to us. What is there to complain about? From a kingdom perspective, grace destroys all grounds for pride, boasting, envy, and jealousy. I have no reason to look down on others or lift myself up over others. So let us all be careful of discounting the grace we have received by begrudging God's goodness to others. Now as I conclude, I want to read you what one pastor said about this text. This is a quote, and he says it way better than I could, and this is how I will close. He says this, Length of service and long hours of toil in the heat of the day constitute no claim on God and provide no reason why he should not be generous to those who have done less. All human merit shrivels before his burning, self-giving love. Grace Amazing grace is the burden of this story. All are equally undeserving of so large a sum as a denarius a day. All are given given it by the generosity of the employer. All are on the same level. The poor disciples, fishermen, and tax collectors as they are, are welcomed by God along with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There are no rankings in the kingdom of God. Nobody can claim deserved membership of the kingdom. There is no place for personal pride, for contempt or jealousy. There's no ground for any, there's no ground or any question of how this generous God handles the utterly undeserving. He is good. He sees that one hour workers would have no money for supper if they got paid for only one hour. In generosity, he gives them what they need. Who is to complain at that? I'll end with another warning here as we enter graduation season. I want to remind our graduates of something. Why wait in the marketplace your whole life before coming into God's vineyard? Why wait? Why squander the vitality of your youth for things upon which you will be ashamed when you stand before God. Do not wait to serve God until the last hours of your life. Yes, God is extraordinarily generous, but He's also free. And He is free not to return to the marketplace of your life looking for you. He's free. Don't presume upon the goodness of God. 
For those of us who have walked with Jesus for a long time, decades, there's also a warning for us. We should never think that we can demand or be deserving of more blessing because we've borne the heat of the day in the daily struggles of ministry and life. We should simply live and serve and say when we stand before our Lord, not, I should have des- not that I deserve more, this is what we should say. What a joy it has been to serve such a generous and loving master. I don't need more. It has been a joy to serve my king. I have only done my duty. May we all learn from the reading of God's word. Let me pray. Father, I ask today that you would speak clearly into our lives and may we have kingdom perspective. So Father, if there's any in this room that do not know the graciousness of Jesus, I pray today would be the day of salvation. Father, for those of us that are tempted either to be envious or jealous or bitter or anger, angry, Father, I pray that we would reflect on the generosity that's come to us in Jesus. We are beggars all. And Father, I pray that you would give us the perspective to rush out into the marketplace, to invite all people into the gracious vineyard where they can, provide, where they can find life, sustenance, everything they need in the arms of Jesus. So, Father, bless this time for Christ's sake.